0: did Santaland diaries as well.
1: Yeah. Well, Santaland, I think it's two guys. It's a two-hander.
2: And you take turns. Yeah, yeah. It's like the vagina monologues, but for being an elf at Christmas.
1: Just exactly like it. (laughs) Make sure
0: you use that. (laughs)
1: Can you use that comparison, please? It's a vagina monologue for elves.
0: (laughs) Oh, so stupid.
1: Okay, he's here. He's here. He's here.
0: All right. Get your bow ties out. (laughs)
1: to Cocktails at Table 7, Inside New York's Joe Allen.
2: In May of 1965, Joe Allen began life as a cozy neighborhood bar and restaurant in New York City's Hell's Kitchen.
1: Located just a few blocks from Broadway, Joe's quickly developed a highly loyal clientele of young performers, writers, and creative types.
3: The food was
2: great, the drinks were stiff, and the fabled flop wall celebrating Broadway's most notorious bombs gave the room an added touch of insider charm.
1: Over the decades, Joe Allen grew into a New York institution, and on this podcast, we'll celebrate Joe's history with longtime regulars who know it best.
2: We'll hear from actors, producers, writers, musicians, neighbors, and friends who will share with us just what makes Joe Allen the place to be.
1: So here's to old friends, new friends, and cocktails at table seven.
0: Guys! I don't think you do. know, but this 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 is our f- 500 episode.
1: It's our f- 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 what episode?
0: <laughs> I don't know. It's our 400? It's our, f- our 500th episode. Jason, you're really you sound like a DJ. It's 500 episodes cocktails at table 7. That's right.
2: This is our 500th episode and uh, the other f- Four hundred and seventy-three, or <laughs> under a different title. But
1: seriously, is this forty? Is this our fortieth? I think it could be. Maybe we should figure that out.
2: <laughs> I also don't know where we're going.
0: It's just a little <laughs> bit of silliness. That's all.
2: No, it is very silly. But the problem was you were breaking up, so I couldn't figure out exactly what you're saying. Uh, uh, maybe I'll just I'll just. Show. I don't want you to shut up. So as I, I
0: want me to shut as up. As
1: per usual as per usual, we're having some technical difficulties <laughs> with one of our microphones.
0: It's a running egg. That's that's all. That's all I mean we
2: could fix it. We could fix it and we could have perfect sound, but what fun would that be?
1: None at all. <laughs>
0: that's no good, good. That ugh. for our March episode. Can you
1: believe can you believe that it's March and that it's spring? How fast? Is it just like because I'm getting older or is it like, did it really go by quickly? From Go
0: by quickly? Are you insane? That was the winter of our, our tent part four. <laughs> oh my, my God.
1: <laughs> I feel like this month flew. but No, just this month. I feel like this month flew by.
2: This month has flown by and you can see from Jason's uh, uh reaction there that we all have different <laughs> perspectives about how quickly the seasons are moving.
0: Time is relative, Dana. Time is
2: relative. It's true, please. I feel like it's long days, short weeks and very short months, you know. Uh but but anyway, we're back. It's March. We're back to our once a month schedule. We're putting out a show a month. Each show that we're putting out, the ones we were putting out once a week were great. These we have to make a little you know even better because we're only we're only popping up once a month, and we have a really spectacular, charming, delightful, endearing, and engaging guest this week for you and that is Mr. Jesse Tyler Ferguson yes it is <laughs> and, and you both can explain why he's so
1: great <laughs> well, we were talking earlier just about he's he's just such a generous open-hearted spirit um i interacted him with him i think during spelling bee so that was a while ago but just your pal like i don't know about you guys but it felt like we were actually sitting at table seven having a drink with him and he's just an de- absolute delight
2: he's he's a, a person who is so engaged in all these different interests and different pursuits in his life and he, he's really into all of them he's 100 percent engaged
1: Some important little notes to make Uh, his charity organization, uh, originally called Tie the Knot that he founded with his husband, Justin Makita, just rebranded and is now renamed Pronoun. So we're going to put that link in the episode notes. Uh, They do some really amazing work for um, the LGBTQIA plus community, and they're focusing on more, more on, on
2: tra- uh, not more on, but they're making a focus on trans rights, which was not something that they were specifically focused on. Yeah. Tie the Knot was originally known for a line of very stylish ties that they sold for charity. And so when we open this episode, if you want to understand what all the hilarity is coming from, <laughs> and when Jason says, We're all wearing ties, Jesse saw us wearing ties. I think Dana took a picture of that actually. We should put that up.
1: I do. I will, I will, I will post that again. We all were. Bow ties. Bow ties. That's the thing is fancy bow ties. Very
2: dapper, very classy.
1: Take Me Out is opening Monday, April 4th. So that's uh, a little over a week from now. That's exciting. And I think those were the two like big things that are coming up, or we sh- you should check out. He also talked about his documentary, Welcome to Chechnya, which you can find on HBO Max.
2: Just to change gears, the show that we talk about where Jesse rehabbed Kevin Cahoon's family home was Secret Celebrity Makeover. It's actually a really wonderful, warm-hearted show.
1: And now that we've bored you to tears... No, we'll cut it together Te- and it won't Jesse, be so boring. Here's Jesse Tyler Ferguson to cheer you up.
0: <laughs> on Cocktails at Table 7. The
1: five-star podcast
0: time is relative
3: we got dressed up you did I'm not
1: we thought we'd wear (laughs) bow ties for you (laughs)
3: And Dana had to go the extra step and have hers actually <laughs> conducted by electricity. It's blinking at me.
1: If I won't turn it off.
3: It's a little lost on people because it is an audio medium.
1: <laughs> I oh God, it won't turn off.
3: The worst is when your bow tie will not turn off.
1: <laughs> Did I get it? Oh now it's you, oh, no, now it's
3: just not blinking.
1: Oh, okay, there we go.
3: Of the three choices, that would, this is the least distracting. Obnoxious?
1: Okay. <laughs> All
3: right. Oh my goodness. Welcome. So anyway,
2: <laughs> Thank welcome. you. Thank you for joining us. The last time that I saw you, we were in Joe Allen and we were talking for the documentary that you were working on. That's right. So what's going on with that?
3: Well, it's really exciting. We finished shooting it, um, obviously, because so just to back up a little bit for our listeners, um, my husband, Justin, Makita and I uh, produced a documentary with the director, Amy Rice, about Broadway reopening after COVID. It's called Broadway Rising. Uh, And we've been using a lot of footage from people's personal cell phones to to sort of document the lockdown period. But we finally wrapped shooting on that um, in September once Broadway started reopening. You know, we wanted that the climax of the movie is those first openings at Broadway. And we want to get it edited and out as soon as possible so that it can sort of act as a marketing tool for getting people back to Broadway. We just submitted a um, a rough cut to Sundance, which is really exciting. So we're waiting Great. to hear about that. And I can't wait for people to see it. It's really good. But yeah, we, we sat in Joe Allen's and uh, talked a little bit about what COVID meant to the, um, the restaurants and bar scenes in, in Times Square. And that's sort of what this documentary is really not just about Broadway returning, but, you know, Broadway is bigger than just the actors and the, the directors and the people who are putting the shows on. It it also extends to, you know, the parking attendants in Times Square and the dry cleaners up in the Bronx where, you know, they, the Broadway shows send all their, their costumes to be laundered. So it affected so many people. And we really wanted to show the scope of the Broadway community. So hopefully we did that.
2: I think we're all really looking forward to seeing it. Now that the ball's rolling again, you know, it's hopping a little bit.
3: Yeah, I was in Joe Allen's on my last trip to New York, and I was in Bar Central, and they were both packed, you know, I had to make my reservation. And it was very exciting to see that uh, people are coming back. And I know it's not where we were at before. Yeah. Um, But Times Square is starting to feel a little bit more like it did at the beginning of 2020.
0: Uh, I do have to say walking around the theater district on a Saturday about 530 is so aggravating in the best <laughs> way possible. <laughs> <laughs> because you are dodging and walking in the street to get around the people. Just and like the old days. Just mm-hmm. like the old days.
1: Prior to the shutdown you were supposed to be going into Take Me Out.
3: Yes. We're starting rehearsal again in February. So that will have been basically two years after we were meant to originally premiere. Premiere. I've been in Hollywood too long. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> Previous.
3: <laughs> um, exactly. Um, and honestly, I, I knew about the play about nine months before rehearsal back in 2020. So I I've known about this play for a very long time. So by the time I finally get on stage with it, it will be about three years that I've been waiting to do this play. The Uh plays take me out at second stage. Um, I'm playing Mason Marzak, which is a role that Dennis O'Hare won a Tony Award for. So there's no pressure there. Um, (laughs) Yeah, we were in rehearsal for about two weeks. We're about to move into the the Helen Hayes Theater, or now I guess it's just the Hayes. And that's when everything sort of slowly started shutting down. And uh, I went back to LA right after that. I thought it was just going to be for a month or so. And yeah, you now it's been a lot longer than that. Did you have to relearn
0: your lines?
3: Yeah. Well, the short answer <laughs> is yes. Um, and the, the few weeks when we were first shut down and like basically all of March and half of April, I would look at the script once a week. And I uh, sort of just like run, run my lines again, because I, I was basically off book. For those who don't know the play, my character has these sort of big sweeping monologues, waxing poetic on, on baseball, and they're really beautiful and almost Shakespearean. And I was just having a really great time learning these monologues. And now I've gone back to the script a year and a half, year and almost two years later. And I'm like, oh, I got to relearn all these. I don't remember any of it. <laughs> um, you know, because we were rehearsing at this really weird time when people were concerned about being in large crowds, and there was sort of this murmur and this hum around the theater district of like, I'm not sure if we're going to be able to actually get this mounted. And I remember talking to Joe Mantella, who was in previews for Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf?" And he was saying, is it weird to rehearse something? No one's actually going to get to see. And he was the first person that sort of made me realize, oh, this is actually a, a very serious thing. So I feel like when I was rehearsing the play on the first round, I wasn't able to fully let myself go and, and get excited about it because I was protecting myself. It's also one of the reasons that the lines didn't really marinate in me. And mm-hmm. I'm now in this position of having to relearn them.
0: Were you a baseball fan before this, or after this? Did it sort of turn you on to the uh, to the intricacies of the feelings that people have around baseball?
3: Um- it's not that I wasn't a baseball fan, but it's not something that I actively pursued watching. I certainly didn't watch on TV. I always had fun when I would go to a game, but I also like the social aspect of it. You know, I I went to baseball games with my dad as a kid, and I sort of felt like a, a little bit of a chore. I was definitely an indoor kid and not, <laughs> yeah. not super into sports. I'd rather, you know, listen to my show albums in my bedroom. Um, and that's sort of the way I still am. <laughs> but what, what, honestly-
0: what show... What show posters did you have in your bedroom?
3: Which ones didn't I have? I had, oh, I yeah. had like, you know, the Patty Lapona Vita one, but the one with her, of not course, just the, yeah. the, the graphic, but the, with her doing the, the V arms. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
2: Don't we have that in one of the ladies rooms? Yes. I think yes, we do.
0: We do.
3: Yeah. yeah. I, if I remember correctly, it's maroon and she's backlit really beautiful. Absolutely. Yes. The Harris <laughs> Barkley. Uh-huh, yep. That's right. Um, but to go back to the question, I mean, looking at this play and, and Richard Greenberg is such a, who's a, the playwright of take me out is such a massive bit. I'm a said basketball baseball fan. Um, <laughs> and the way he has written about it has made me very, you know, ma- makes me look at the game in a much different way. And Scott Ellis uh, on the first week of rehearsal had us going to baseball camp and my character doesn't play baseball. He's an accountant. Um, so I went to baseball practice for like the first day, and then I was like, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna sit the rest of these out, Scott. I don't need to watch <laughs> yeah. my cast learn how to play baseball. Send me to accounting school, maybe." Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, uh, I, I watched a few documentaries about baseball. It's a really great one on PBS. It's like a 22 part baseball documentary yeah. that's really fantastic and in depth. So yeah, I've been learning a little bit more about it. If you aren't from the New York area, we like to kind of see what it is that brought you
2: to the city. We read about how you grew up in Albuquerque and that you did children's theater. Could, can you elaborate a little on that for us? Yeah,
3: I was part of this a theater troupe called the Albuquerque Children's Theater. And I was taken to it first as an audience member. My mom took me to go see whatever play it was. I believe it was Alice in Wonderland. And I remember sitting in the audience and I was a very quiet kid. I was very shy. And I, I was watching the show and I told my mom, I, w- I want to be up on stage. I, I don't want to be watching. I want to be up there with those those people. And she was sort of shocked that you know this quiet, shy person wanted to be in front of all these people. So she enrolled me in the Albuquerque Children's Theater. And it was basically kids who eventually oh. performed for other kids. I, that was just really exciting for me to, to be on a big stage. And so I started Started doing community theater. I worked with the Albuquerque Civic Light Opera a little bit as well. Um, doing shows alongside Neil Patrick Harris, who is also from Albuquerque, he would always get the role, the speaking roles because he was a star already at that point. He had done Clara's Heart. He was, you know, in between Clara's Heart and Doogie Hauser. And so, if he wanted to be John and Peter Pan, he was going to be John and Peter Pan, and the role were was you, not available to anyone else.
0: <laughs> were you his understudy then too? Because for the Tony Awards, you were his understudy. That's right. I know. It's, a, it's just a full circle moment. Like,
3: you know, I, I wasn't his understudy because i guess kids aren't you know they don't get them yeah. do all eight or do none um <laughs> you're not gonna you know kim miss saigon it here christine <laughs> um then uh years later when i did move to la and i was doing um a sitcom uh not modern family but another one right before that i was actually shooting in the same soundstage stage as how i met your mother so neil patrick harris and i were right next to one another <laughs> oh that's awesome and, and yeah years later I was one of those kids that would go see the touring shows and would watch, you know, the Tony Awards every year. And I always knew I wanted to go to New York, even though I had never, I had no concept of what, what New York was. I thought Broadway was just a street. Like if the theater was on Broadway, that was a Broadway theater. And if it wasn't on Broadway, it was not a Broadway theater. Like that's, you know, I just, I didn't know. I didn't know what Broadway was. I just knew that it was something I wanted to see firsthand. And so um, when I was 17, I joined, there was a, a group of older women from the Albuquerque Civic Light Opera who took this trip every year to New York and they would see, you know, like seven shows in five days. And my mom said, well, you can join this trip or you can go to France for a year. Um, with the, with the French exchange program that we've already kind of started because we had a French exchange student with us that summer. And I said, I'd rather go to New York for a week than <laughs> France for a year. <laughs> Let me go to, to, to New York and, and see all these shows. I was the youngest person in the group by far by like 30 or 40 years. But yeah, I went with all these like. <laughs> blue haired ladies to New York that. and soft <laughs> uh, phantom, the opera and falsettos, which was the first Broadway show I got to see that wasn't on the, the docket of, of shows that we were meant to see. I, I think I like bailed on the radio city Christmas spectacular and went to go see falsettos instead. I played hookie.
1: I understand that choice though. Not, not, not to knock the Christmas spectacular, but, no. but falsettos is falsettos. falsettos.
3: Yeah. And it was, it was a, sh- it w- I remember seeing the cut of falsettos and the Tony awards that, that, you know, the, the, the performance that they did, they're sitting, I'm watching Jason play baseball, we're watching Jason play baseball. And I was like, this show is amazing. And so I had to see it live. And it was the first Broadway show I ever saw. And I remember leaving the theater. I think it was at the golden. I remember it was a very small theater. Cause that was the other thing I was very struck by. It's like Broadway houses are very tiny. Because Popejoy Hall back in Albuquerque, New Mexico, seats two thousand people. So I was like, these are very shabby, tiny houses, and old, <laughs> a little dirty too. Um, but I remember leaving the theater that Falsettos was playing at and thinking, if I ever get to work with William Finn and James Lapine, I will have made it. Mm, wow. Well- for anyone That's who knows my amazing. career, the, I did Spelling Bee on Broadway with Jane Lapine oh, and William Fenn. So we
1: saw we we were there. We saw it. See, so yeah, I have my
3: oh, you have your playbill. I have my
1: playbill.
3: You had that specific of a thought about that piece, and that you wanted to work with those two. Yeah, it it's also beautiful. does mean so much to me. It, it's I mean it's the first Broadway show I ever saw, and I love that it's the first one I saw because it's it, it's a little subversive for especially mm-hmm. for a seventeen year old closeted kid in Albuquerque, New Mexico. It really It resonated with me in very obvious ways for anyone who knows the show. (laughs) (laughs) Just the fact that there was these gay characters on stage and they were speaking so openly about loving one another and so beautifully about loving one another and it was such they had such a quirky romance like i just it felt very real to me mm-hmm. and um it sort of opened my eyes to like what theater could be and it could be anything you want it to be and you could tell any story you want to tell as long as the packaging is interesting and the you know the way you're telling it is, is interesting people will hopefully like it and so you
2: uh, you eventually did move to the city and you studied here
3: yeah, that, that trip with the um, Civic Light Opera, I think it was right before my junior year of high school. And immediately after I graduated, I, I moved to, to New York to come to the American Musical and Dramatic Academy. And I think I was just about to turn 18. So I wasn't even really fully legal. <laughs> uh, and my, me and my dad drove our Suburban from Albuquerque to New York with all of my stuff packed in the back. And I moved into you know, student housing at an apartment building on 86th and Riverside Drive. Amdev was at that point housed in the Ansonia building on mm-hmm. 73rd and Broadway. So I would walk down to, to school every day and walk to the theater district and see shows as often as I could. Um, it was a really, really magical time because I was so young and so excited to be in New York. And I remember just thinking like, I can't believe I have a bed in New York City, mm. yeah. like a little twin bed that I in a room that I shared with five people, but I couldn't believe I had a bed. That was like, I had made it.
0: So what was your? Uh, do you remember your audition song to get into EMDA, or I did you do two?
3: I did. I did do two. Yeah. Um, the first one was "Try Me" from "She Loves Me," mm-hmm. and the second one was um, "Never Will I Marry" from "Green Willow." Which is very obscure. Never, never, yeah. never, never will I marry. I think like Barbara Streisand covered it at one point. So I was like, "That's a great song." Uh, those two songs were also my audition songs for On the Town, which was my which was was my Broadway debut. My, my we, debut. We,
1: we saw that too.
3: Oh, look at you, so <laughs> yeah. prepared. Oh, and your tickets.
1: And oh my you God, see you're when so I organized.
3: <laughs> look at that. <laughs> she, she's 21st, a company first, 1998.
0: Lesson. Wow. Yes. Yeah, twenty five dollars. Yeah.
1: Well, I sat in like the last row of the rear mezzanine because I was home from college. (laughs) So you saw
3: it when it like was doing okay because then like we were at the Gershwin Theater, which is the largest house on Broadway. It's where Wicked plays now. And the show originally started at the Delacorte Theater in Central Park as part of the Shakespeare in the Park Summer Series. And the Delacorte is also a very big theater, but it did really well in the park and people clamored. It was like one of those hot seats that you just couldn't get a ticket to unless you waited all night. And Betty and Adolph Green would show up at almost every performance and like mm-hmm. receive their own standing ovation when they walked into the theater. And so it transferred to Broadway and it didn't do as well on Broadway. And it closed after, I think, two and a half months.
0: Well, it feels I- sort of like a small show, especially the part where you do the, you know, in the taxi cab, it's like two people yes. in this miniature little taxi cab. Yeah. How is that going to read to to the back? But yeah. Yeah. And you did it with a very subtle and nuanced Leia DeLaria. <laughs>
3: Yes, she definitely filled the theater. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we've been friends for now over 20 years.
1: This was randomly looking through the program. Chandra Wilson was in On the yes. Town with you, and now Jesse Williams in Take Me Out. You've got yes. you've got your Grey's Anatomy friends.
3: Yes, absolutely. Random
1: random thing, I noticed. It's not,
3: that's very random, but I'm glad you noticed that. <laughs>
0: She's a Grey's Anatomy fan.
1: Oh, she oh is. there's oh. All
3: 17 seasons. Wow, that's commitment.
1: <laughs> well- did something. <laughs> Were
2: you super excited to be performing in the park?
3: Oh my God. It's the answer to that is as since then, I've got, I've performed in the park five more times because I love it that much. I had seen The Tempest with Patrick Stewart at, at the park when I was a student. And, and it was one of those tickets that you had to like wait all night yeah. for. But I knew when I was in that space that this is a very special, hallowed, honored, holy space in New York. Like you're lucky yeah. if you get to perform in this space. So when um, I got to do On the Town, it was very, very special. And I've, Gotten to perform there several times since.
0: Do you have any rats running across the stage? Stories or bugs flying into your mouth during your solo? anything oh, like that.
3: I mean, so many. I think sure. there was there was one one show in On the Town where. So the taxi cab scene, which we were speaking about earlier, mm-hmm. in the park, the taxi cab raised out of a, a, a elevator in the middle of the stage, and so Leah and I had to be in the elevator down down below the stage beforehand, and then we rode the taxi cab up to the, the stage. And it had rained um, all night the night before and all this water had collected in the trap door. (laughs) (laughs) So when the door opened, we were just rained <laughs> on buckets oh, no. of water, so our entrance onto the stage we were so soaking cold. wet.
1: Oh, oh, so gross! I know, dude, I know. Sure. I like, <laughs> <laughs> After
3: that, they 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 tested the trapdoor before every performance. Oh, oh my god! This dirty stage water with like oh. I'm sure like raccoon poop in it.
1: Oh sure. Let's not think about what might have been in that water. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. Is the reason that you've done so much Shakespeare in New York because of how it fits into your schedule? Or have you always wanted to work on those scripts because they're so demanding?
3: When I was doing Modern Family, you know, Shakespeare in the Park was that uh, sweet, those sweet months in my hiatus where I could fit something in and actually get Mm -hmm. a full run. So I basically threw myself at every opportunity to perform. I am one of those actors who isn't classically trained. I went to AMDA, but there wasn't a program about classical theater. I feel wildly intimidated by Shakespeare. Um, the first Shakespeare I did at the, in the park was A Midsummer Night's Dream, which is pretty accessible. I think it's something you know we all read in high school or saw or did at one point. And so that felt achievable. Yeah. <laughs> the next one I did was The Merchant of Venice with Al Pacino. And I was terrified to do it. I remember buying a copy of No Fear Shakespeare. And for those who don't know, No Fear Shakespeare, it's on one side of the page, it's a Shakespearean text. And on the other side, it's like translated in sort of plain English, (laughs) Um, sort of layman's language. So you could sort of understand what you're saying. And of course, I never brought my No Fear Shakespeare text to rehearsal. I would always have, you know, my my (laughs) Pelican or like whatever, you know, whichever script everyone else was using uh, and there were such Shakespeare nerds in that show you know Lily Rabe and Dan Sullivan was directing and it was just a stacked cast. Hamish Linklater mm. who, you know who's his mom like basically raised him on Shakespeare yeah. later. So I felt just very intimidated. And one day in rehearsal, I was rehearsing my one scene with Al Pacino, and my text was very difficult. I played a basically anti-Semitic clown, and I was going to be doing this in New York City at the Delacorte. I'm like, well, this (laughs) is (laughs) just—they're going to hate me, Uh, and how to make this funny too? It was like, you know, these malaprops were just hilarious 300 years ago, but today it's like (laughs) "Mm, you got to work for them a little bit. Anyway, I'm rehearsing, and he's doing his part, and it's not what's on the page. And I'm like, what is he doing? Is he improvising? What's going on? And I look up, and he's like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm on the wrong side. He was reading from his No Fear Shakespeare. And he was <laughs> out of the page. And I said, I stopped rehearsal. I said, okay, we have to talk about this, because I have the same copy, and I have left it at home because I'm too intimidated to bring it to rehearsal. And you're actually working from the No Fear Shakespeare on stage. And he goes, you have to. It's too complicated, otherwise. yeah, You need all the help you can get. I was like, oh my God. The fact that oh. Alpin. Oh Chino, also from Shakespeare, has made all this so much less intimidating. I accept the challenge. And I've gotten to do The Tempest. I've gotten to do Winner's Tale and Comedy of Errors, which uh, you know is, obviously, yes. is, is a really fun one. So if I've, I like doing it. I like the challenge for sure.
0: Do you often find yourself challenging yourself in terms of things that you fear? I mean, we were looking at clips and, and you did a yeah. mountaintop thing with Bear grills mm-hmm. That looked absolutely <laughs> terrifying. <laughs> Yes.
3: Being on Modern Family for 11 years, playing a role that was so close to me, I think it definitely challenged me to look for opportunities that were scarier. Running wild with bear girls, you're living with a survivalist for two two days out in the wild. And that's the show I did that we're talking about. Um, was a very scary thing. And I think my my initial instinct was to say no to that. We could circle back to the beginning of this interview when I just said I was an indoor kid. I mean, like <laughs> yeah. it's everything that I'm scared of. I I had to build an igloo to sleep in overnight. It was intense. Yeah. But it it did challenge me. And I did look at it as a as a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity that I needed to say yes to. And, you know, then I look at doing something like fully committed on Broadway, where I played mm-hmm. 40 characters and had to work with Kate Wilson on like creating who's a dialect coach, creating all these different sounds and these voices for these different characters. And I started working on that and memorizing that nine months before I officially started rehearsal because I was like, "How am I going to learn this ninety-minute play where I'm in dialogue with myself the entire time?" I mean, that yeah. show starts, and you're on a moving train that's not going to stop for ninety
0: minutes, There's and you're the of, one who's driving it, and you're so. the one who's
3: driving it, and you're also the passenger on it. So, yeah. <laughs> it's scary. So, like, I think those are t- two great examples of my yeah. personal life and like my professional life where I I do want to do things that that scare me, and like even talking about take me out, it's. It's scary for me because it's a a performance I saw Dennis O'Hare do twice because I loved it so much. And it was one of those performances that shaped me and made me want to continue acting. And the idea that I'm now being trusted with this great part is really exciting. But also, I'm going to not lie, it's really scary. It's really terrifying. I don't want to let the people down who who love that play. I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to be a um a bad Mason Mars act for them. And I also for the people who haven't discovered that play yet, I want to I wanna honor that character and let them see how wonderful this play is. It's very scary.
0: I'm sure you'll be brilliant.
3: Well well. We'll see. You've had three years to get ready for it. <laughs> it's true. It's true. If I don't know my lines by now, we're screwed. <laughs> you could say
2: the word you were going to yes. say. Yeah, it's just okay, a I really edgy. I will, I'd be podcast. fucked. I'd be fucked.
1: <laughs> <laughs> on top.
2: You know what? One thing I just want to say before we go yeah. on one thing Bear Grylls never had was Delacorte water dumped on his head.
3: No, that's true. So <laughs> that's true. I'm sure that's, he would
2: have
0: filtered it through some leaves and yeah, it would have been right. fine. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Um,
1: No, I was going to say, you know, you, you, you know, taking chances like this, doing work that um, excites you and is, you know, pulls you away from yourself and also your activism. You do an incredible amount of work, especially for the LGBTQIA plus community. You have so many things going on, like your tie the knot and and your other documentaries too. welcome to Chechnya. Mm Wow. Wow.
3: Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, like,
1: all I can say is
3: yeah, I know. Welcome to Chechnya is a really it's a it's a brutal watch, but it's really important um, about the gay purge in Russia, specifically Chechnya, and, and basically the this group of people who help uh, LGBTQ kids escape escape Chechnya so that they can save their lives. It's it's a very it's a it's a documentary that plays out like a thriller because it's just terrifying and unfortunately true and really happening. But um, you know, when I when I started doing Modern Family. I realized I had this platform as a public figure in pop culture, playing a a gay character in a relationship on a major network show. And it felt like I had to use that opportunity to give back and do good. That's why Justin, my husband, and I created um, our organization, Tie the Knot, which was at the time uh, meant to raise funds to help... The organizations on the ground fighting for marriage equality is. It was before we we developed it before Proposition Eight here in California mm-hmm. passed, which was the prop, proposition that um, banned gay marriage in in, in California, and uh, we have since achieved uh, federal marriage equality, which is really great. But I hear from people all the time that, you know, now that we've won that we're done, but there are still so many places where you are still persecuted for being gay and you can be married on a Friday and fired from your job on a Monday for, for marrying the person that you love. And then also the bigger scope of, I think, you know, that we we're in a major fight with our, with our trans family members Mm -hmm. and our, um, uh there's there's just been so many hate crimes against the, the trans community recently. So actually um we tie the knots still exists, but we've just um recently rebranded and our our organization is now called Pronoun. And uh we're we're uh basically doing the same work but we're working the, the scope of what we're doing is is a little bit more broad and a little bit more relevant to what we need to uh work on and what we need to work toward today.
1: It's incredible.
0: Since you single handedly changed the federal law with the <laughs> foundation yeah. You can move on to bigger and better things. Yeah, not single handedly. No help. No, change the world all of your activism
2: reflects your personal self, things that yes. are of value to you, which makes it all the more,
3: I would think, rewarding. Absolutely. And even just this documentary about Broadway coming back, because I wasn't actually on the ground, but I, I desperately wanted people who aren't don't have access to Broadway as readily as we do to, to be able to see how great this community is, and how resilient this community is, and how needed this community is. Mm-hmm. Um, that's also, I guess, in a way, a little bit of activism and just in, in sure, terms 100%. of trying to share my passion of Broadway and
1: yeah, I loved your quote. Um, I read in Playbill about Broadway Rising. You said. This film is for that kid who like me have no other option but theater. And who have for the last two years been forced to reevaluate that dream and wonder what now Broadway is the soul of New York city. And I'm so ready to celebrate its reopening.
3: Yeah. I mean, one of the things that's really unfortunate and hopefully it's not gonna be a huge lasting thing, but I feel like there's a whole generation of artists who have been so discouraged. You know, my, my niece graduated from performing arts school In 2020. And basically after her showcase, they were like, you guys should go home because there's no jobs in New York. But I put myself in her shoes. I'm like, I know how much I needed it. There are people being told that their dream has to be put on hold for a little while longer. They might throw in the towel before they've even started to try. And that just breaks my heart. I do hope that we can find space for this new generation of artists. And hopefully a documentary like Broadway Rising will
0: give them hope. Mm. What, what made you want to come to Joe Allen for a little bit of that?
3: Um, well, I mean, it's for me, it's a staple. You know, it's it's where I go very often before and after a show. I knew from just having friends in the restaurant and bar scene how horrible and how difficult, specifically in Times Square. Like it's those restaurants are driven by tourism. Um, and it was important for me to, you know check in on them and, and see how they're doing. I have no idea how much of that footage, because like, you know, in a documentary, it's 90 minutes. And like we have to sort of like pick and choose threads and it sort of reveals itself as you, as you move along. I don't know how much of that is actually going to make it into the documentary, but um, it was important for me to at least try and get some coverage of it.
0: Sean, you're gonna be hitting the cutting room floor again.
2: Well, I was gonna just say to Jesse. I, he, I was used, I, used, I was gonna tell Jesse, you can cut me out, but if you cut out Mary,
3: <laughs> you, I don't know. Three of us I
2: just don't know. The three
3: of us are, are were, the three of us were in the sizzle reel that we had put together because it was an at that time when we cut the sizzle reel together, it was like uh, I don't know, maybe early June. So we were working with all the footage that we had, had up until that point. So we were part of that footage. Whether well, or not well, we make because it we were in the first two. week,
2: but that's
0: fine. That's <laughs> yeah, fine. yeah, yeah, exactly. But whatever no, comes
2: exactly. <laughs> up, you're absolutely correct in the fact that there's a million stories to tell about this. Yeah. So whatever it ends up being is, is going to help everybody yeah. out.
3: So um, do you remember like when you first started coming? I feel like I knew about Joe Allen's when I was in school. It was like Carmine's, Joe Allen's, and Sardi's were the three that like, those are the theater district places where you eat. And also for me as a kid who was, you know, had $3 to his name, I was like, those are the places where the really rich people go. Yeah. <laughs> um, when I started working on Broadway and on the town and spelling bee probably afterwards, it was those places that I was like, oh, I can go to these places and not worry about like breaking the bank. And um, listen, I mean, they're very affordable that for anyone who's listening to who things like yeah. I'm talking, this is not like, yeah. it's really good food at a. Affordable price, but for a 17 year old kid, it seemed unreachable. Um, I also loved McDonald's when I was growing up because you know I had the metabolism to support that. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I think I just started going you know, when I was a part of the Broadway community because it was where you'd go to like see other people on Broadway and. I remember like sitting in a in a room that like near Patty Lepone. I was like, oh my God, I'm eating at yeah. the same restaurant as Patty Lapone. This is insane. <laughs> I've made it. Uh, so yeah, you know, I I I think it was like when I when I started working on Broadway, I felt like, okay, now I can allow myself to I, I could afford it really, partly. Yeah. yeah. And I think we all know that Bar Centrale is where the rich people eat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly well, then, well, then Barston Trolley became like the new the new hot spot you know yeah. I do remember the first time I went to Barston Trolley because I was like going to this place they're, like the, the 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 name's not even out you just have to know where to go you just go up this it's a brownstone you go up these stairs and they just let you in and like you have to like know the person at the front door but, like it was right when you all had opened and no, no one really it's not that like no one knew about it but it was definitely like a, a really well kept secret and it felt like a speakeasy and people that were there were really exciting and then all of a sudden people sort of like heard about it and we're were getting word that that's where you should go that's the place to go after our show and then it just became a really fun scene i remember sitting there one night with like when elaine stritch was still around elaine stritch and like mandy mandy patinkin and it was nathan lane and it was just a who's who it's really exciting And it still is. It's still really exciting. Every time I go to Barston probably I see someone that I've either just seen on stage or someone that I'm a fan of.
0: Can you tell me where to get good green hatch chilies in New York City? Fresh?
3: God, that's yes, <laughs> native to New Mexico, my home state.
0: Yeah, Well, good. I
3: mean, so Hatch Chili, they're they they har- they're harvested really once a year. yeah And they show up in supermarkets around, I want to say, September. You can find them in a lot of grocery stores at that point. But honestly, the canned stuff is really good too. Oh,
0: uh, yeah. You got yeah. a favorite brand there?
3: I just, Hatch brand is, is yeah. That's great. It's just like the little can. You, you recognize it when you see it.
0: Are you cooking something tonight?
3: I am. I'm making a... Uh, I'm sick of I, my my husband requests the same things over and over and over. Hi. And um, I've I wrote a cookbook uh, in the past few years, so I, I he requests stuff from that book a lot, which is a, a huge honor. I'm happy he loves the stuff I, <laughs> that I created, but I'm getting really tired of some like of my, my own recipes. So I pulled a cook sh- cookbook off the shelf. Melissa Clark, who's a food editor for for New York Times, she has a really great cookbook called Dinner. So I'm making yeah. some Thai inspired. Chicken thighs and um, pickled cucumbers. How oh, cool. That sounds well, good. Chicken thighs.
1: Will there be like a special uh, children's cookbook in your future now that you are cooking yeah. for a Tiny humans.
3: I have, that has been a serious consideration of mm. mine. Yes. And I just have to figure out what that cookbook is. And I want it to be something that kids can actually cook from, not just food that kids would eat. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so that sort of limits things <laughs> wildly, true, true. <laughs> but yeah, I think that's a really great idea. It's something I've definitely been thinking about.
0: I, I'm sure Sean has something to say about what kids will eat. Yeah. <laughs>
2: how, how old is your son?
0: 16 months. Okay. So he's not going
2: to be into the chicken thighs just yet. You'd be surprised. Really? He's really kind of an adventurous eater. Uh, yeah. Well, my, my cookbook would be boiled noodles. And, uh, <laughs> can't get my kids to eat anything.
3: Well, I made him boiled egg noodles the other day with butter. And I was like, he was not, he didn't want them at all. And I ate them all. So I was like, these are delicious. Yeah, I, I know. They they are. <laughs> egg noodles and butter. So good.
2: A little shaker cheese. And oh, be, uh, so good well i mean there's so much <laughs> you got so much stuff we could i wanted to ask you about rehabbing kevin Cahoon's family house
3: well it's okay so the, i this is actually maybe for any actors who are listening i i what i've learned is to never expect anything of my career i just let i let things surprise me um uh, i was asked a few years ago to be the host of the reboot of extreme makeover home edition on hgtv and um I was hesitant to do that because I didn't want to really do reality TV, but at the same time, I knew that it was an opportunity to help a lot of really deserving families mm-hmm. get a fresh start with their homes. It was a really, really special experience, but this other show that I was a part of, it's just a guest. I was able to um, renovate uh, a friend's home in Texas for him and his mom, um, a home, a family home that had burned down 20 years ago and had sort of sat in disrepair Um, And so we were able to actually finish that home for him, which was really, really special.
2: It was great. We've known Kevin from the restaurant forever. Yes. So I was like, he's, there's, those are pictures of Kevin, Kevin Cahoon's house. (laughs) It was such a cool thing to see one friend of, you know, friend of the place and another friend of the place that are friends with each other doing something so,
0: you know, thoughtful. Yeah. Yeah. Dana, do you want to get on to the,
1: we haven't even touched on modern family, but,
0: Oh God, that We're, show? Like,
1: I, you know, <laughs> I don't think that. anyone's ever heard of it or watched it or anything, but. Uh, wow.
3: I do have people who come up to me, like I, I, this happens quite often where there'll be someone who's like really excited to see me. And the person that they're with is like, I don't, who is this person? I don't, I don't know who this is. And so their friend will say, modern family, haven't you ever watched? And they're like, they look at me like with a little bit of disgust. This happened a few times. Disgust <laughs> but I don't watch TV. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, I I it's really fine if you don't. I got paid regardless. I mean it worked out great. There's no pressure. It's a good show if you ever want something to watch, but there's no pressure. <laughs> I don't I'm not offended. Um but yeah, that was a very, very, very special and unexpected thing that happened to me. And um, what an honor to be, you know able to play a character on TV that was um, part of a very secure, established gay couple. And they were just, you know, when you meet them, there are these two guys that just happen to be new dads and they're trying to figure out how to be parents. And I was just really honored that we were trusted with those characters. You know, as someone who was raised in Albuquerque, New Mexico, closeted and didn't see a lot of people on television that were aspirational, I was happy to be hopefully that person for kids now. So it was a, a big moment in my life and will always be an incredibly special moment in my life. And we all remain very, very close friends. I'm sure a lot of them will show up to take me out. When is the sequel movie coming out? There's got to be <laughs> one, right? <laughs> uh, who knows? Um, I know. I, I, I'm so envious of these casts like Will and Grace that they thought yeah. their show was done and then they came back and had another four years. I'm like, maybe that will be us. I don't know. We'll see. We
2: like to do a last call, which is sort of our version of the Proust questionnaire, Mm -hmm. but it's got some restaurant questions
3: and
1: some neighborhood
3: questions mixed in.
1: All right. Question number one. What's your drink at Bar Centrale?
3: Oh, it's uh, traditionally a cosmopolitan, or as my mom likes to call it, a metropolitan. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. (laughs) I I am on a martini kick right now.
1: What's your...
0: Yeah.
3: Vodka. Yeah. Vodka. Usually Tito's slightly dirty. Mm. Olives. Not blue it's, cheese olives.
0: No, God, no. That's also good to throw in a little twist on there, that little mix. I,
3: I was really into gin martinis for a while, but they were not good on me the next day. Uh, <laughs>
0: yeah. I think we've all been there Yeah. once. <laughs> a that's, a, that's a long lesson. Gin is learn. a gin gym will really, really hard,
3: do some damage. But yeah. it's really delicious when you're having it. <laughs>
0: What
2: profession other than your own would you like to attempt?
0: Uh, chef. I think you're onto that. This one uh, is always a stumper. So um, what live performance floored you the most?
3: Well, I'm just going to go with what I recently saw that most recently floored
0: me, and that was um, Dana H. Uh, oh,
1: yeah? Yeah.
0: Can you sing the first verse of Not Getting Married Today in Under 30 Seconds? Go part of me
3: is everybody there because if everybody's there i want to thank you all for coming to the wedding i'd appreciate you going even more i, mean, I must have lots of better things to do even, not a word of it's paul. I mean, paul you know that i'm gonna marry but i'm not but everyone's ruin is wonderful See us. Thanks a bunch of i'm not getting married go have lunch because i'm not getting married we've been grand but i'm not getting married just don't stand there i'm not getting married don't tell paul i'm not getting married today
1: oh, yeah.
3: good <laughs> <laughs> i know <That> i is- <sighs> i'm
1: i'm <laughs>
3: <laughs> that was awesome. that was a that. great shot. <laughs> I was put on the spot. I wasn't prepared. If I'd been oh. prepared, I would have slowed down a little bit. Also, oh, that no, that was I perfect. That's was really really brutal. I understood you...
1: almost every single word that you said. So, <laughs> I think I think that was pretty darn good.
0: And when you throw a clock into it, it just yes. it throws yeah. you. Yes. That was that was a brutal question and you, that you, was you,
2: you, <laughs> you handled like it,
3: it expertly, expert.
1: <laughs> um, What's your favorite dish at either Bar Centrale or Joe Allen or both?
3: Uh, the meatloaf mm. at Joe Allen what's and the your fried f- chicken. Oh, yes. Oh. The picnic fried
2: chicken that they yeah. do at the Bar Centrale. Is that what you, mm-hmm. you mean? The, what, That's mm-hmm. right. What's your favorite curse word? Fuck. You know how many I mean, people say that? I mean, it's- yeah, it's, <laughs> I, well,
3: me I, say time, so me I, have, oh, I say it all the time. Me too. I say it all the time.
0: I do.
1: If you could invite anyone to join you for a perfect New York evening of Broadway and dinner at Joe Allen, who would you invite?
0: Oh,
3: gosh. Kamala Harris, Patti Lapone, and uh, probably Audra McDonald. Oh,
1: That would... Can I sit with you, too?
3: Yeah, you can sit with us. Um, I was trying to think of a guy... Just this throw in there, but I was like, ah, no. Maybe Doug, goal. Doug Emhoff. Can he come? Sure, <laughs> yeah. Doug can come. Doug can come. <laughs> <laughs> he can drive. He can be the designated driver.
1: Oh my gosh.
3: Dana total, was just mentioning. I was the... going to say total
1: side side note on on Audra, but carpool karaoke with uh, Audra McDonald singing the high note at the end of one day more right in your ear. I mean, come on now you saw,
3: I mean, it, there's, it was there's amazing. visual proof that I'm like losing my mind. And then <laughs> if you watch the Tony awards, when they were, where she and Stokes were singing wheels of a dream, oh, uh, the camera yes. cut to me and Justin and mm-hmm. I have not been able to load this down yet, but I look, I'm pl- clutching my pearls. I'm <laughs> gasping. <laughs> I'm probably crying. Me and Carrie Butler are clutching onto each other's hands. She was my seatmate. Um, but obviously Audra is uh, someone I admire greatly and it's well-documented.
1: Well, but I'll just, so another side note, speaking of like not knowing, did you guys know what s- songs that he was going to play before you got in the car? Or are you not allowed to tell us that? I'm not allowed to tell you, <laughs>
3: but if you, if you can sense what I'm doing, gotcha. I got gotcha. you.
1: <laughs> Audience, you will never know. Well, You'll I'm
0: sure know. you would have gotten the lyrics right. No matter what it was. Yes,
1: yeah, of course. Yes, I of was...
0: course. <clears> well, they, so. the, the li- we don't have a teleprompter. Right? I will say that. Right. Uh, oh yeah everybody in that car knew that song right like perfectly
1: yeah it was great yeah anyway (laughs) i'll put us back on track here jason
0: oh if you could pick one word to describe how you feel about joe allen and the establishments what might that word be one word uh home Mm. yeah you get that a lot everybody feels very homey there so that's you know that's uh that's what we're shooting for, and yeah. we feel it as well. I mean, I didn't, at least I didn't say, like, heartburn. <laughs> <laughs> no, home is fine. Home, we get home. Like, home is
2: a completely good answer. We get it a fair amount, but not as much as we get fuck.
3: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> True. I wish that someone fuck uh, with the word That was, like, associated with Joe. <laughs> I was like,
1: then I want to hear that story for sure. yeah, yeah. yeah,
3: yeah.
1: <laughs> Well, thank you so much for taking the time out to be with us. Uh, this was really great. We really appreciate it. Yeah,
2: Thank you for having us. It was totally me. a pleasure, Jessie. Yes. Thank you.
1: We like to end the show with our toast. So let's raise a glass to good friends, great nights at the theater, and cocktails at table seven.
3: Yes. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.
1: Clink. Clink, clink.
2: Tales at Table 7 is produced by Jason Woodruff, Dana Mirlock, and Sean Kent, with theme music by James Rubio, and logo, design, and artwork by Christina D'Angelo.
1: Special thanks to the owners of Joe Allen, Orso, and Bar Centrale Restaurants.